Welcome to Chat, a television podcast, season 8B, Roots Chat, the next generation. My name is Alan, and I'm joined as always by Magellan. Hey, what's up? Good evening, my son, my sweet child. Good evening, my father. There aren't a lot of podcasts out there with like a father and son. Now that I think about it. Yeah. Can you think of any? Oh... No. <laughs> I know like the My Brother, My Brother and you guys have had their father on their podcast yeah, before. On, yeah, on the Adventure Zone, I guess. That's yep. like father and sons. But uh, uh, I can't think of one that's like, hey, father, son, hanging out. Talk. I mean, I guess that's the problem, right? Is that men fathers don't and sons talk don't to talk. each other. Exactly. You got it. Exactly. Yeah. My, I, st- I recently subscribed to the podcasting subreddit. Which is pretty fun because it's a lot. It's actually the majority of it is people being like, is there a podcast that does this hyper specific thing? And people finding like really cool examples of that stuff. So it's like fun if you want to just let your podcast backlog explode and melt. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw one that was like, is there a podcast where every episode covers a different American president and talks about the good, the bad and all the stuff that they did? And someone's like, yes, it exists. <laughs> <laughs> and it's called Presidential. Um, that's a plug for another podcast it's like from four years ago so it was right when trumbo started um they like did it on every guy and apparently it's it's decent i think it's from like the washington post or something but i like that i like that podcasting is just one of those mediums where you can like roll the dice right you can say i want a podcast where it's two girlfriends talking about painting <laughs> and you're like yeah that probably exists <laughs> somewhere in some language that's enough navel gazing for now. It's time to talk about everybody's favorite television show, Roots. Specifically, Roots: The Next Generations, which are going to be covering for the next couple of weeks um, as we transition out of talking about the base 1977 Roots. Um, Magellan, Roots: The Next Generations is an interesting backstory uh, because the original Roots was based on Alex Haley's 1970 uh, something novel. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I know exactly what year it came out. It's 1976. You guys, come on. And the second half of that novel, fake right there. thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. The second half of that novel wasn't covered in the original series. So, with the success of original Roots, the miniseries, they did the Next Generations and like got a big budget. I think it was like sixteen point six million dollars, which is about triple the original. Uh, and they used like most wow. of the same production company, uh, and they mm-hmm. made a seven episode, all ninety minutes, following yeah. basically the. The character of Tom Moore and Chicken George, that part of the family, all the way down to Alex Haley himself. Yeah. So, and it's actually based on. Uh, it's kind of interesting because there's like far less of the book that covers this stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. It's only seven chapters from the original Roots: The Saga of an American Family out of I'm not I think thirty something chapters. I'm not sure. Wow. Um, and then the rest is based on uh alex haley like dictated tons and tons of his 
memories of stories from his family into a tape recorder and mm-hmm. then the uh Ernest Ern, Ernest Canoy, yep. the guy who wrote the uh scripts for TV took all of that stuff and uh made an outline of of the series based on that. So, it's it's interesting because we talked in uh you know, in the last Roots chats how once we get past Chicken George, do they actually have like historical records of these people existing and could use real names? And from what I understand, they still didn't. Uh, at least the names and some other like factual errors were uh, just, yeah, not even addressed. They, uh, you know, stuff like uh, Carrie and Jim Warner, two characters in this, uh, are not Warner and Barden, but are actually James Turner and Carrie White. So they like, changed names changed like relationships to other people what Mm -hmm. i think i think my overall feeling before we get into these first two episodes is that roots the next generations feels like a period drama more than it feels like a miniseries uh and that's interesting a really subtle differentiation because when it's a miniseries it feels like the subject is mostly the time period and the sort of environment that it takes place in same like when we covered Pride and Prejudice, that's like what these miniseries are always are often about. But mm-hmm. Next Generations is more specifically about like these characters, this specific town at this specific time and what happens here. Uh, you know, and it lends it lends a sort of more personal, like intimate, I guess, feeling to the series. But and then, you know, by episode two, when we're moving on to the next, we're going to be going on to the next generation. It's like, oh, yeah, this is Roots. I forgot that, like, this is the same series with, you know, Quinta Quinte coming on the boat and Chicken George, like, losing all of his mm-hmm. money and all of that stuff. This is still mm-hmm. the same storyline being told. And so it's a different feel. Um, I think we both agree that these felt like a little bit slow uh, compared to original Roots. Yeah. Um, but that in part is also because we're focusing more on sort of structural problems than like physical attacks on humans. <laughs> yeah. It's also moving through time more slowly, at yes. least the first, these first two. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I guess part one of, of the original roots is a pretty small span of time, but it feels like after that you're sort of every episode, there's like a time jump in the middle of the episode or something. Um, but in this, I mean, the entirety of what we watched, uh, only stretches a 15 year span from 1882 to 1897. Yeah. So, so yeah, it definitely does feel more, uh, focused and we're also staying in, in this one town. Um, and you, you could certainly see like a prestige drama called, I don't know, whatever the name of the town was, um, that's about all of these, like, oh my gosh, you know, love in the time of post-slavery type of thing. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I I, I think uh, I found at least the beginnings of the original series more compelling than than this, but I think there are still quite a few interesting and important things that we can discuss out of what we saw in parts one and two. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I want let's we can get right into it if you're down. Uh, this sure. first episode, part one, uh, has a teleplay by Ernest Kinoy, and it's directed. It was directed by John Ehrman, and it aired February eighteenth, nineteen seventy nine. So once again, where did they did the like one episode a night thing? At least for these, I don't know if they do that for the whole season. Hmm. 
Um, John, what happened in part one of Roots the Next Generations? In this episode, Tom Harvey assumes the leadership of the black community in Henning, Tennessee, from his aging father, Chicken George. Now, while it is pretty short, I think that that summary kind of gets right to the, my, my take on this first episode, which is that, uh, like I said, Henning, Tennessee, while a pretty interesting like sort of place to get the pulse of what at least the American South was like in the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it really takes a while for your brain to like adjust to the different pace and style of this series. Cause it's like, okay, here's your new ensemble. Here's like the people that you're going to see for the rest of the show, even though it's only two episodes. And you remember Tom, you remember chicken George and Irene and, and that, and those characters. But now we have like a whole new, new class. Uh, and mm-hmm. so we have them, we have, um, Tom, as you mentioned, is now sort of a bigger member of his community and is attending a meeting of the Republicans of color, which I wanted to ask you about sort of the where America is at politically in the mm-hmm. late 1800s in terms of like the term a Republican and and what were the parties that were being voted mm-hmm. on? Um, yeah, so it's kind of a it's a weird question to answer, I think. So essentially last episode that we saw we were pretty solidly in the period of time known as reconstruction uh which lasted from 1865 or so uh through to 1877 and reconstruction is the period following the civil war where uh, in many different ways the united states is trying to rebuild following that conflict and um during that time, you ha- you have a group of Republicans in power uh, in Washington who have a an explicit interest in civil rights. Uh, they're called the Radical Republicans. And at first, the process of Reconstruction, when it's heralded by Abraham Lincoln, is um, he's more interested in compromise with the South and kind of like, let's bring them back into the country quickly, put this behind us, and we're not going to ask for too much. So his plan for reconstruction is, okay, we'll ask them to pass the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery. And then we'll say like, yeah, 10% of the citizens have to swear loyalty to the US and that's it. And the radical Republicans are like, what the fuck are you talking about? Abraham Lincoln, like they just <laughs> they just declared a war to protect slavery. They committed treason. There has to be a bigger response than that. Uh, Lincoln ends up getting assassinated, um, and which we heard about in the last episode. In the last episode, right? Then Andrew mm-hmm. Johnson takes power, and he is a Democrat. Uh, he's friendly to the white Southern governments, um, and so this there's a slight period of regression during Reconstruction before. He's ultimately um, Congress wrestles power away from him. And then you get Ulysses S. Grant, who's sort of willing to do whatever the radical Republicans are asking him to do. Um, And so for a while, um, during that period of time, there's a military occupation of the South there. The federal government is building schools um, throughout the southern states. There is... um, the highest proportion of black representation in government, um, I think of any point in American history, to be perfectly honest, before or since, uh, at the local level wow. in those states. Um, because you have some states where, you know, ex-Confederates are barred from um, 
running for office and uh, this newly enfranchised African-American population is voting for other African-American people. So there are some states that have like majority black legislatures. Whoa. Uh, yeah. With, uh, during Reconstruction. Um, I, it was a couple. There, there were some that even had black governors. Um, I think Louisiana is one of the states that had a majority black legislature huh. during Reconstruction. Um, and so that's a context to keep in mind here that um, that that is how this could have gone and how it went for a certain amount of time. Um, but if you are a white person who just fought a war to preserve slavery and then you see that now African-American people are enfranchised and are holding public office, you're like, no, this this can't stand. I'm going to fight against this. And eventually the North, uh, the Northern government grows kind of weary of continuing to for enforce Reconstruction. So in the election of 1876, the Democrats and the Republicans strike a deal because the Electoral College vote is a tie. Mm -hmm. um, and so it has to go to, the, to Congress to break the tie. And um, the Democrats basically agree, like, we'll let the Republican Rutherford B. Hayes be the president if you take troops out of the South. Um, so that's a long-winded way to say that during Reconstruction, the Republican Party is pretty strongly um, correlated with, like, being pro-civil rights and pro-Black enfranchisement. And the Democrats are maybe not vocally anti that, but they're certainly uh, not for that. But then following 1876, when we get into the period of time in this episode, you're in the Gilded Age, and neither party really has any sort of strong affinity for civil rights. The Republicans are benefiting from African-American votes because Lincoln was a Republican, right? And there's yeah. still that legacy of like Republicans, Reconstruction, that kind of association. Um, I want to vote for the Lincoln Party because I'm a right, you know, exactly American, and um, and that really doesn't change until uh, like FDR is when that starts to shift. Um, but <clears throat> in the late 1800s, Republican Democrat, it's kind of indistinguishable because both parties. Maybe this will sound a little familiar, but both parties are essentially. Uh, doing the bidding of their corporate overlords um what for... <laughs> yeah i know can you imagine no what you're being crazy um <laughs> and so you have african americans in the south who essentially uh feel politically abandoned following reconstruction and so that i think adds some context to tom harvey's decision in the first episode when you see the meeting of the um the black republicans who are like, maybe we should strike a deal with the Democrats. Maybe that's where we're going to um, see the best benefit because it's just a matter of like, who is going to actively support us, protect us and help us. Um, and party isn't really relevant anymore. Fascinating, especially when you consider, yeah, yeah like where the party system in America is at right now in the sort of division along lines of things like civil rights and human rights at this point yeah. um, and I, I get students asking a lot like uh <laughs> you know oh the democrats are are the confederates or whatever but they're 
they're the good guys now. Like, oh no, oh sweet children. Um, and it's a complicated thing, but essentially, there's a period of time where there isn't really a strong party affinity for civil rights, and then things, uh, change in the 20th century. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to, for them to grow up and for this show to get there too. Because <laughs> right. I think like, like I was like saying earlier, the the political backdrop of Roots, especially now that we're in this point where America is changing so quickly on a, on a political scale and like with the elections mm-hmm. and the importance of being able to vote and, and disenfranchisement and stuff like that, uh, you're seeing more like the adult characters in this series can actually make small and large scale changes to their world and are mm-hmm. instead of just like you know people are trying to survive people are trying to fight for their freedom like now the fight for freedom is happening in in politics and in government and it's really just fascinating to watch that shift happen yeah something a wrinkle that i forgot to mention yeah two two wrinkles really um so the 13th amendment abolishes slavery um but when the radical republicans are steering reconstruction they add two further stipulations uh, to Southern states reentering the Union, and that's the 14th and the 15th Amendments. Um, the 14th Amendment is the one that guarantees equal protection of law, which we'll see violated um, in a sort of loophole way later in this episode when we start talking about Jim Crow laws. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second, the 15th Amendment, is um, constitutional protect- protection of the right to vote for all men regardless of uh race which we'll also and... see violated in the second episode <laughs> correct da, yes. da, 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 da. so um this period of time that we're going into the the 1880s 1890s uh and and the early 1900s some historians uh passingly refer to that period of time as the nadir of race relations the, like the wow. low point of race yeah. relations yeah 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 um because we have this conception in American history that it's like a straight line of progress, right? Yeah. Um, but it just that's not that's not how it happens. Um, there actually is pretty startling progress during Reconstruction, and then a pretty startling backlash that's both legal and extra legal, as we were talking about last week. Um, and it shows up in a number of ways in these two episodes. Um, and then the other wrinkle, this is kind of a fun thing, and I don't know that I'm going to express the claim with historical precision, but I think there was a certain interest by Northern politicians in abandoning the civil rights protections of Reconstruction mm-hmm. because uh, they were seeing the potential for those like civil rights protections to also apply to immigrants in the North. Yeah. Um, and so it's sort of like, well, if we want to oppress this group of people, we need to sort of allow for the oppression of African-American people in the South so that, you know, both regions can have their sort of labor class. Uh, it's only fair. Right. <laughs> and uh, again, I didn't express that entirely precisely but that's in the mix as well yeah it's a it's a pretty tumultuous time and like you were saying it's not a linear this is not a linear story of progress in america america is not a history historically like working straight towards objective improvement i think i don't think anywhere is really 
Uh, and I think that's really well reflected in Roots because, you know, while this episode feels a little bit more kind of cozy in the town of Henning and like we get mm-hmm. a lot more scenes with the white characters and a lot of whom are not terrible. And it's not just like old George and his wife. It's like now there's a couple of like not, like well-meaning at the very least white folks. Um, mm-hmm. The show never backs away from saying that even the nicest people, um, even your your uh, Tom characters are still like you know, he has a moment with his mother later where he's like, and I do acknowledge that my whiteness makes me superior, but I love this black woman that I married. And you're like, ah! <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're, we're in a time when it's, it's more common that they can eat together and laugh together and, and like play nice together in a way. But ultimately race relations are still in a really tough spot. Uh, yeah. obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I want to talk about the Tom and Carrie stuff, uh, because, uh, you know, that's it feels like a whole B plot. I think you had mentioned in your notes, like, yeah, starting in next generations, we're no longer just following the family legacy of Kunta Kinte. We're now like going to entirely different families who are related by uh, their problems and like the fact that they go uh-huh. to Tom and uh, his wife to uh, help them with things. Uh, yeah, so we they're kind of a couple love plots that I think actually. I, the the theme that I sort of drew from this episode is um, the ways in which race complicates love mm-hmm. uh, during this time and like who can be together and who can be seen together and who you're willing to accept into your family and those kinds of things. Um, and we see it with like two different couples. So we can talk about, well, basically bigger, bigger picture in this town. There's this colonel uh colonel warner yep right? yep 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 played by henry fonda so again <laughs> roots is doing doing its thing and bringing in bringing in some white folks that you recognize um and henry fonda has a couple sons and we'll talk about his other son later but he has this younger son named uh tom is it tom i have it written as tom. no it that's jim. It's jim it's jim tom is the guy tom is the main character okay yeah it's so jim. he's Sorry. got this this son jim warner and jim carrey uh, that's how you remember them <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> nailed it okay so jim warner and then new to the town is a woman uh by the name of carrie and her last name is barden good uh, job thank you i'm looking at the wikipedia page <laughs> So Jim Warner and Carrie Barden, she goes to the house of the colonel to like introduce herself and to borrow some books. Uh, she's this new school teacher for the town. And um, what we learn, she ends up in a conversation with Jim. And it's a really well-written conversation, I think, because there are multiple moments where Jim like talks down to her and assumes that she's dumb, basically. Yeah. Uh, and then is like kind of too surprised when he learns that she went to college she went to fisk university uh which is pretty new at the time she says she's in this was in the second graduating class hey pretty cool Um, that at this time you can be like i'm the second one (laughs) yeah so during reconstruction i mean that's another thing that was going on is the establishment of schools that we would now refer to as as hbcus um historically black colleges colleges and universities Mm um so you have fisk and I think around the same time Spellman and uh, 
and Morehouse and places like that. Um, I'd have to get the exact years, but I think that they all generally were powered around this time, time or no? I would assume so, but I I think we would need to check that to be sure. Okay. Um, but I would imagine so. Um, yeah. yeah. So she's a graduate of Fisk University, and they bond over the fact that they both like poetry. And he's, <laughs> I'm sure you love this. You bet I did, uh, bud. When he's like, hey, have you heard of this guy, Walt Whitman? He writes some really sexy stuff. <laughs> it's uh, pretty hot. <laughs> okay. Um, but, so, oh, yeah, yeah. John's a friend of the fact that I, especially in college, um, in my last year of college, I read Leaves of Grass and have since become like that person that never stops talking about Leaves of Grass. It, But like, what's it's it's extra funny to me because, yeah, yeah, I also have like introduced people I had a crush on to it. But like, Leaves of Grass for me was like, uh, like queer awakening a poetry text, you know? And like when yeah, he talks about it, he's right. like, it's about a man that loves a woman. And she's like, didn't he like just talk about like sex in general, like with some guys too? And he's like, no, 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 no. It's like a guy and a girl. Like, it's cool. <laughs> it's cool. It's straight. I swear. And I'm like, dude, uh, he fucking, <laughs> it's not. It's not. Sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah. He, um, he clearly is not fully reading everything that's in Leaves of Grass, which is also interesting. Well, yeah. The passage that he reads is a poem that's about the death of Abraham Lincoln. And he's like, oh my God, it's amazing. Like we all, we can all relate to that, right? Like we all felt so yeah, bad. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I hate him uh, and I love him, is what I'll say about this character. <laughs> um, that is a beautiful poem, though. It is. It is. But but not, yeah. Anyway, so they bond over that. And then they have a few scenes together where there's this kind of like, uh, he's he's really pushing to spend time with her and be around her. And she is very hesitant, uh, which she explains later. Um, and, it, you know, we'll talk about that. But she's very hesitant to kind of get involved with this guy, but he keeps pushing himself on her and he brings her the book and then they go have a picnic together. And, uh, in the scene where he gives her the book, I I found this pretty interesting that he's, um, he's basically before he gives it to her, he's like, now, you know, there's like a pretty big difference between us that might affect how you read this book. And just like, for example, I don't know what it is exactly, but, and I, of course was like, oh, there he's white and she's black. Like that's what he's referring to. Yeah. Yeah. And then she's like, you're referring to the fact that I'm a woman. And he's like, yeah, totally. I, there are just some dirty words in here and I was going to cut them out with my knife. <laughs> and it's like, what the she's hell? like, no, don't ruin a book. <laughs> it's like a baby. And he's like, of course you're, you're so right. Oh my gosh. Like, um, what was I thinking? But I, I thought that he was going to talk about the race thing because there's some there's some pretty stark, like, anti-racist stuff in Whitman, I think. Yes. Um, when he's talking about singing. I mean, I sing The Body Electric. You know, it's about gender, but there's also a lot of race commentary going on in there. And that well, seems to have just totally gone over his head yeah that's the beautiful thing this is the one place in this set, this podcast where i get to be a little bit of the scholar um yeah, a lot of this is like an important thing to understanding whitman as a early uh sort of like progressive writer is that not only did he write about like romance and love and sexuality but also specifically wrote about like bodies regardless of how big or small they were and regardless of the color of their skin are all beautiful and we're all part of each other and while now that's like kind of crunchy granola bar philosophy stuff that was a big deal at the time was like wait this guy doesn't even care like he doesn't care we're all like beautiful and capable of love and sex and and like companionship that's amazing it was a very big deal because it felt universal yeah. for once. 
but uh, I yeah. digress. And he, he kind of, I think, you know, Jim Warner kind of gets it, but kind of doesn't, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. So they end up having this like picnic scene where he goes in to kiss her and he tells her that he loves her. And I thought this was the most interesting exchange between them, um, which I think then the episode actually like undercuts in a really frustrating way. Um, which, but the what ends up happening is he kisses her and then she's like, oh my God, why would you do this? Why would you do this? Everybody was assuming that I was like going around with you and we were having sex and it was really special to me that this was a sort of like intellectual connection that is like a spiritual thing between us. Yeah. But she's like, of course, now I can't believe any of that because you're just another white man who thinks he can have his way with black women Mm -hmm. whenever he wants to. Um, And I thought that was really, really powerful. Um, And, you know, it's a, it's a pretty important thing to acknowledge, like such a huge barrier between any possibility of love between white men and black women during this time is, is the legacy of the things we've talked about in previous episodes about, you know, the ways in which black women were sexually abused and raped by by white um slaveholders and overseers and and those people that even though those practices ostensibly are no longer uh you know located in slavery um those that like relationship between those groups of people that legacy is still there and the worry and the fear on the part of black women is still there that mm-hmm. white men are predators um, which is kind of an inversion of what uh, the kind of predation that was talked about maybe at the time where a more prevalent fear among white people was the fear of black men preying on white women. And that's used to justify uh, legal and extra legal limitations to the rights of, of black people. Exactly. That's, that's like what, that's what birth of a nation is about. Right. It's like we need to protect them. Yeah. And it felt actually from a cinematography perspective, there's a pretty famous scene in Birth of a Nation where a white woman is fleeing from a white guy in blackface Uh um, because he's going to presumably uh, rape her in that scene. And she flings herself from, from a cliff instead of that happening to her. And there's a lot of stuff in Birth of a Nation about like black men eyeing white white women like, ooh, oh my goodness, yeah. And it felt like this scene where Jim Warner is chasing Carrie around after she says like, no, I don't want to be with you. He's chasing her and grabbing her and she runs across the bridge. I definitely got vibes that they were like evoking Birth of a Nation to say like, well, actually, here's the here's the power dynamic that you really should be looking at and worrying about. Right. The show is trying to say that like, it's not, it's not the way that the the narrative was pointed, was, was showing it. And I think that's one of the, the, my favorite things about the, the, this character and the, the Jim Carrey stuff is that they don't just like blanket say that Jim is a cool dude and you should like him. You know, ultimately like they get married and they do stuff together and he has some moments of triumph, but there's always this undercurrent that the show never whole gives up on, which is that this guy is still working and living under a system that gives him 
supreme power over the woman that he chooses to marry. Yeah. It's 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 cool too how um and I we haven't we're we're gonna move on, but like this episode and it seems like the next generations, especially in general, is showcasing more women, especially black women, like in major roles. Um mm-hmm. I mean the whole Harvey family besides Tom, they're all women. Uh I mean and Chicken George also, but uh you know, that's something that nowadays you see as a push like this show is successful because it's about black women and this show is like no it's about a black family that just happens to be all like all women at the time and Mm -hmm. and it gives it this vibe like this is a story about women uh and what they're working towards which is really great because even in in roots when we had the kizzy story it was like about her relationship to a man especially instead of Mm -hmm. just like her relationship to her education and to society which is what all this is about so just something I noticed that I really liked. Yeah, and it it's um it costs Carrie her her role as a teacher, or it like almost does. Yeah. This relationship with, with Jim Warner, because the Colonel is is that in the second episode or is it the first one? When she loses, I, I believe it's in this one. one. Yeah. Uh they they run away together um because they can't be out in the open together here in um in Henning. Uh the colonel like disowns Jim. He calls him uh, the N word, and he says that you know you're one of them now. And uh, there's no way that they can have this kind of like public relationship. So she, uh, I don't know, is she the teacher in the second episode? Does she permanently have to sacrifice that, or is that just a temporary thing? I don't want to predict. Yeah, I don't. Correct. I don't remember. I don't know for sure, but it at least seemed that it it could have cost her or it did cost her this position in society that she worked pretty hard for. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that and that allows her and <clears throat> affords her a sort of power because being a teacher at this time for presumably for, I mean, is she only teaching uh, like African-American children? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Okay. So it is still like you're able to, you know, you're a, you're a teacher as well. You're obviously a white teacher, but you're able to teach people like, the actual history and like how revolution and how the rest of the history books are, are not being honest about a lot of stuff or are masking a lot of the history of America. Like maybe her, that position gives her a little bit of power to be like, well guys, you know, here's what I have to teach you, but like keep this Mm -hmm. in the back of your heads as you get older. Um, Which I think is something that roots always reminds us is that like one of the strongest things that you can, the most powerful ways to fight back is to, is to teach the next generation and make sure that they don't make the same mistakes that we do. Yeah, right, right. So that the the um, Jim Carrey stuff uh, goes. I can't stop saying it like that. <laughs> <laughs> Bad. It t- basically uh. he's trying to court her, and it's obviously not uh, going well with his family, who don't support it in any way. His older yeah. brother just seems to like the you know I play Xbox in my room and I have Halo. Do you guys want to come and smoke weed with me? Kind of kind of brother. Uh-huh. Like at first yeah. he's harmless. You know he's just like he has this weird girlfriend who's like kind of attractive and he, they're like oh you guys are weird. Yeah, you're a bum. They're driving around drunk in their carriage and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and at first when he proposes to her, it's interesting that she, like you said, we we're saying like rejects him because she's like I don't like feeling controlled in this partnership which is fascinating because for a lot for a lot of reasons like we were discussing she doesn't she's not doing this she does like feel an an attraction to him and love for him but doesn't want this marriage to be like and then you possess me in a way which is again pretty progressive 
Right. Well, and because, again, because of the legacy of what that means for black women and and white men. Um, Because I think she says later when she's talking to Irene that it's something that her mother told her, like, don't ever, uh, you know, I don't know, get involved with a white man or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she has this moment where she's like, basically like, Irene, I, it's really eating me up inside because I really want to be with this guy. <laughs> I am really attracted to him and it's making me feel horrible. And Irene's answer is interesting. And I'm, I don't know, I'm torn about it, I guess, but she essentially says like, Hey, um, those urges that you have, those are totally cool. Back in slavery times, uh, as she says, the, one of the main comforts that people had was sex is what she says and yeah like be, and be in love and being with someone you can jump the broom you can get in bed together that's the stuff that they can't take from you yeah and so she's like that's that's godly that idea of being attracted to someone which i think is really beautiful yeah um uh but i do think that the the show kind of brushes aside the concerns that carrie has about like being in a relationship with a white man and what that means um, I guess because he sort of relinquishes his family and his social standing uh, to a certain extent, that's a resolution to that. But it doesn't feel like they ever fully resolve that that tension. Yeah, I wonder if their family and their situation is going to come up in the future. I doubt it, but mm. because we're going to be moving presumably away from this town. But yeah, their stuff ultimately feels like it's just existing on the periphery. And it's like, hey, this is something that matters that's happening. And, you know, she, Irene is one of the, the major reasons that they go through with it yeah. and that they get married. But otherwise, it's just like, hey, here's something to think about. Just that, like, a, this is why I was saying it felt like a period drama is like there are just plot lines that don't tie into the main plot, but exist to make you think and consider something about history. True. That's a good point. You know, uh, here's something to think about. And then we can move to a different section of the plot sure um but earlier you said jim warner and carrie barden those aren't their real names yeah which is true uh also it says here on the wikipedia page that um the like the whole jim being a son of a colonel thing was not a, th- a thing uh he didn't have a brother and mm-hmm. um it was probably the case that the real people that this was based on the Jim and Carrie, this was actually based on um, Jim may not have actually been white. Um, no, oh he may have been mixed race and there is some voter registration uh, role in uh, from 1891 that identifies him as black. So, huh. so this whole plot is actually fabricated and isn't based on anything real um, because there were, most likely at the time laws against miscegenation. Um, and so they wouldn't have been like legally allowed to marry each other. Is that interracial marriage? Is that what miscegenation is? Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so that, that basically covers the Jim and Carrie stuff because their plot line, I mean, it, there is a moment later where after they get married, they uh, come back outside and there's like a mob out and people are pretty intimidating, like carrying weapons and stuff, including Tom, who seems like he's actually there not to start anything, but to like prevent anything from happening. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then they just kind of Sorry, go off. to be pre- precise, miscegenation is like um, sex and between people of different races. So uh, I got inter- interracial marriage is probably a more accurate way to say that. Okay. Uh, I'm just trying to remember if anything else happens in that last part. Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, I, I know that, so. yeah. There... I just this this stuff felt weird. I also legitimately thought that Tom at this point was like going to do something, but mm. again, it's just like he feels, and this is great that this character he feels like valuable enough as a member of the town that he's like, yeah, I stop fights here. Like even though he's in his older age, he's not just like watching and smiling or watching and frowning at the world happening. He's still like actively ready to, yeah, to bear arms in a way. Yeah. Um. But the other main plot that's pretty brief in this first episode because there really isn't too too much going on in this one other than like scene setting and like world setting like we said mm-hmm. um is the situation with elizabeth uh tom's oldest daughter and uh the man that she feels she um falls in love with whose name is john um so john is mixed race as well uh he's the child of uh of a black and white parents and uh he he seems like a pretty decent guy um i think that though that this plot line mostly kind of works to build to their relationship in the second episode because in this one we have a relationship i thought he was gone well he does no he does leave i'm saying in this one but i mean like her i'm I'm sorry i mean like the relationship between tom and his daughter uh is what what matters more that that was on me i didn't specify i kind of like said it in my head um because what we learn here is that tom is the kind of dad you know there's plenty of people who are like this father type today who is very choosy about who his daughter marries. But mm-hmm. in his mind, it's not just about, you know, how much money do you earn? Where do you live? Who are your parents? It's also like, we worked so hard to get our own freedom. And he he himself, even as a black man, believes that, like, they are invading the purity of our, uh, like, family tree by, mm-hmm. by doing this. Mm-hmm. And has to have this conversation with Irene, who's like, you know that you're a quarter white, right? Because Kizzy was raped by her owner. So you need to acknowledge that, and we can't erase that from our history. Yeah, well, he he doesn't even say that to her, I don't think, to his daughter. No, 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 no. I'm saying Irene tells it to to, to, to Oh, Irene him. says it to Tom, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So he doesn't mention it, but when she keeps begging, he says, no, this is my final thing. And at first, you know, it seems like the the classic, like, dad, you're never going to let me marry who I want to marry. But it really does matter. Like, she is saying, this is the guy that I love and I care about him. And, you know, he identifies more with the, the black half of his family and all of that. But too bad, you know, end of the day, he's like, you're not got you guys aren't going to get together if you want to be with this family. And yeah, because the reasoning he gives is that... um when he has experience with being on a plantation where African-American people who were lighter skinned were given uh, special essentially better special treatments, mm-hmm. felt that they were superior or made to feel that they were superior to African-American people with darker skin. Um, and so he sort of has all this baggage from that that's making him say like, no, I you can't marries someone who's light-skinned because of all these things um but like you said yeah irene is like don't you remember that you're a quarter white and um there's like a degree of of bitterness and self 
loathing about that that I think is also present in him, like banning Elizabeth from doing this. Right, exactly. And I think it's it's really great though too that Roots chooses to now have two two relationships uh like that in this series because even today, I mean I know a couple of I have a couple of friends who are uh who are mixed race. And you definitely still get the it's it's the endlessly like problematic frustration of, you know, I identify with both sides of my culture. But when it comes to like racism and and prejudice and stuff like that, people are always going to choose the part that they like less. You know, all of my black friends are going to call me white and all of my white friends are going to call me black and I'm not going to fit in anywhere. So but in reality, it's like they've been around forever. This is just just how it works. If we're going to go on the assumption with the true the true belief that the color of your skin doesn't matter, then what your parentage should also not matter. But we're not there yet. And we're not there yet tonight either, which is like, again, super sad to see. But it's really good that they chose to to make storylines about that because you don't see that. You really don't see that a lot, even in this world today where you see plenty like more and more storylines about black characters and shows hosted and run by black folks it's like well no but like mixed race kind of gets in this corner of like we still in some communities call them like the light-skinned ones and and jokes like that obviously Mm -hmm. in a bit of an ironic way of like we know this used to be a problem and we don't care anymore but it's still there the prejudice is absolutely still there yeah right and there's also colorism in our society absolutely absolutely um yeah so shoot i was gonna say something oh um did you have more to say about the two of them because i have an interesting connection to another plot line based on that um idea no i mean yeah just him talking there is that great scene briefly where uh elizabeth yells at her flat tom and shouts at him for being a jim crow and starts like saying you know you're a jim crow jim 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 and Mm -hmm. and all that stuff and then he smacks her um, I was going to use that to to pole vault into talking about the Jim Crow laws, but you can yeah, that can I, no, that's what I wanted to. Oh, beautiful, well, beautiful. So we can talk about that scene. That that scene was pretty chilling. Um, yeah, because uh, both of these episodes, it's really sort of like uh, the tragedy of Tom Harvey to a certain extent. Like yes, he yes. just over and over again, life uh, just fucks him over, and then he takes this you know he takes it out on his daughter in this really reprehensible way that i'm sure he's ashamed of in the moment um but because she's mocking him for um almost going along with the colonel deciding to drive carrie out of town for like being in a relationship with a white man and it's this moment where it's like hey why are your priorities aligning with the former confederate colonel guy that's pretty messed up. Um, so I thought that that scene was really powerful for mm-hmm. that reason. Um, Jim Crow. So we hear, like you said, we hear mention of Jim Crow earlier in the episode um, when the train arrives and Tom Harvey has a first class ticket, but he's not allowed on the first class car uh, and told that he has to go in the Jim Crow car. Um, the Gilded so Age, everyone. For, right. So for folks who don't know, um, Jim Crow laws is the nickname that was given to segregationist laws in the United States from around this period of time up through the 1960s. Uh, so, you know, you actually see in the second episode, it's like pretty dorky, but there's a moment where someone is painting colored and whites on like the 
bathroom doors or whatever. It's like that kind of thing. Uh, Or choosing where someone can sit on the bus and something like that. Mm -hmm. That's what Jim Crow laws did. Uh, We're segregating schools. Um, Jim Crow, the reason it's called that is that Jim Crow was like a um, vaudeville character, uh, a blackface minstrel character mocking African-American people. Um, and doing the sort of standard vaudevillian mockeries of African-Americans of like they're lazy or, you know, whatever other stereotypes. Um, and so that like dance, that exaggerated dance that she does. Um, I don't know if that's like a real Jim Crow song, but I would assume that it is. Um, so that's where that's coming from. Uh, but yeah, so we see earlier that there's this tension over the, the train car situation. Mm hmm. And the connection that I was going to make that's interesting it is um, if you've heard of the case Plessy v. Ferguson, yep. um, it's one of the most controversial Supreme Court cases in U.S. history. It was a case decided in 1896 that essentially established that public facilities, which are separate but equal, are legal. So the 14th Amendment says that everybody has to have equal protection of law. But the loophole is like, well, but what if we put people in separate places? As long as the separate things are equal, then it's not a problem. That's and, fine, right? <laughs> right. And Plessy v. Ferguson upheld that. But what's interesting as a connection here is that the case of Plessy v. Ferguson, the reason it was brought to the Supreme Court is that it was an act of civil disobedience by this man named Homer Plessy who was not allowed to ride in the whites only train car, but chose to anyway. Um, I think it was even organized by the NAACP. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but it was organized by some group that uh, just as the Montgomery bus boycotts Mm -hmm. and just as Rosa Parks was like, um, she wasn't just some old lady who decided to sit on a different seat one day. (laughs) It was like a planned uh, action of civil disobedience. Um, So it was a similar situation to that. And the interesting thing about Homer Plessy is that they're, they were really trying to like push the envelope and show how absurd this is because I think Homer Plessy was like one sixteenth African-American, but, but legally speaking, uh, it's sort of like a drop of African-American blood uh, in the eyes of the law and you're black and you go to the black car. Um, so it, it speaks to what we were just talking about and thinking about with the position of people who are mixed race um, in this period of time uh, that it's like, I don't know, it's a complicated thing. But it's of an course. interesting piece of trivia that I think people don't necessarily know about that case. Yeah, I think one of the most valuable things that we can provide in this season of the podcast is that historical context for stuff that you may have not understood well in or were not taught exactly accurately in school, whether you are you went to an American school or otherwise. There's like aspects of the history in this country that the show is like referencing but doesn't explicitly say. And so that's what we're here for in a way is to help. Mm -hmm. Um, That's why I'm so glad. It's part of why I'm so glad to be able to podcast with you as a history as a study of the historical world uh is that you're really smart (laughs) (laughs) that feeling when i said what i had one third of a sentence ready and the other two thirds were like dude i'm not i missed my bus (laughs) (laughs) i gotta go i gotta go uh Uh, but anyways so he has this falling out with his daughter and that's where 
uh, their situation ends. And uh, basically, uh, Jim's father says, you guys, you're going to get married in Memphis. But if you come back, I'm going to make sure that the, quote, white hoodlums in this town don't mess with you guys. And I mean, that's why you get that scene at the end where technically they don't. They just do the the even scarier thing of like surrounding his carriage. He's like, mm-hmm. guys, I'm back. Welcome back. And they're like, what's up, motherfucker? And they just like cir- encircle him. And it's it's so scary. But yeah. nothing like actually physically violent happens. It's just a moment of like, we're ready to drop the tension bomb. Like, here we go. It's happening. And it doesn't exa- it doesn't happen in this episode. Um, but that's where we're at. Also, just a side note. It is a bit of a side note, but it's also important. Uh, so <laughs> Chicken George is recast. Yeah, in this episode, it's so distracting, and they it's barely so use him. I, I, I guess they were trying to stay faithful to when he supposedly died, but yeah, they had to age him up so much they couldn't do the makeup on the other guy, so they just got an old guy. Is um, that what it was? Well, I think I thought because he dies in his seventies or something. But they aged him up a lot in the previous series. Well, then maybe it was yeah, maybe then it was just a casting issue. I think so. It it just was he didn't need to use them at all i don't think i don't think he really added anything to the episode no well okay he he had a conversation with elizabeth at one point maybe mm-hmm. he but... talks to Elizabeth. he basically it's just it's supposed to be a little sad because it's when you realize like if you've ever had you the listener at home or magellan have had like older family members staying with you and it's like if you try to have and i do recommend people who have that opportunity like try to talk to your older relatives just to see what the world is like from their perspective because you know, there's a lot of stuff that we take for granted that is just so fundamentally not in their brain or because they just didn't grow up with it. Uh, so even he's talking about like, wait, like there's a white guy in town and you guys like somebody wants to get married, like a black one wants to get married to a white guy. That's weird, guys. I don't know. And you're starting to see like a version of Chicken George that has grown old and a little bit ignorant and is like starting to cloud even his own life story in his head. Like he's starting to get mixed up. He's like, I won every single chicken fight and I was so rich and I was a free man, like, which is all true. It's, it's pretty much true. But I mean, that and the way that they talk about, you know, the roots thing, you know, they, they, they call, I call it like pulling a roots in my notes is when they say like, and you are the son of this person, the daughter of this person, and who's the son of this person, who's the daughter of Kunta Kinte, the African. And you're starting to see the, the Harvey family um, sort of, distance themselves from his legacy even though they still have a lot of respect for it i would argue even more respect than a lot of folks have now for their ancestors uh-huh. because they still name everybody even yeah. but it all it also comes down to like the two bullet points that they remember about him yeah right which is like yeah yeah dad like you you the two words that he taught us in african were like how to say bore and how to say this thing and he was a great guy and he led to this whole family coming here we know dad like they're already there um yeah which is sad, especially when we've seen and have spent two, we spent two episodes of the first series with him in his own life and like came to love, you know, both LeVar Bird and, Le- and John Amos's performances. And now it's like, well, he's, he's the guy in the past. We don't even know about him anymore because it's such a huge time scale, right? But they are maintaining so, his legacy. Yeah, sort of a huge time scale, but I was actually Not in the struck, grand scheme of things. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually struck by how, how, close a lot of this stuff is historically i mean it it is a huge time scale in the sense that like uh elizabeth is talking about at this point kunta kinte is her great great grandfather Mm -hmm. right that's not that far when you say it like that 
Um, but also like Alex Haley is, I think Cynthia's grandson. I believe you're right. He's only so, three generations away. Yeah, actually, so it's not that far. Really. The version of uh, the Next Generations that I have comes with <laughs> there was I think on the DVD that it's pulled from a uh, mm-hmm. uh, a family tree. Oh, it's like a really nice JPEG of a family tree. So, yep, Cynthia, then Bertha, then Alex Haley. Yeah, she's his grandmother. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he now has kids who are of childbearing. Like, he might he had I mean or. He's no longer alive, but his children are like adults now. So, yeah, but you think about like Alex Haley is an adult during the 60s. Like people who marched in the civil rights movement had great grandparents who were enslaved. Yes. So, yeah, I and I just yeah. saw uh, like a video project from uh, some news network a couple of years ago. I can try to dig it up somewhere like buried in my YouTube history, but it was like, uh, you know, audio from pe- from like the last generation of people who were enslaved in america uh yeah. mm-hmm. and it was like yeah they just they have them on microphone like when we were we, they th- like the last ones of them lived long enough to get to the point where we are able to like record video yeah. and audio and stuff ex-slaves talk about slavery yeah, that, in the u.s that, that was a project of that was a project of i believe the wpa during the the great depression yes yeah, so recorded in the 1940s co- collect these narratives yeah so yeah it's not that far yeah i had a similar thought uh when we see the train pull up yeah and in my head i'm like we are seeing such rapid advancement and change in technology and such obstinate stagnation and even regression when it comes to matters of race right well those things truthfully those things work together you know as long as race continue race relations continue to stagnate and uh, what we can just call slave, we're going to call it, uh, the truth of the matter is that it's slave labor is being used to to, to jettison and quickly accelerate technological advancement. Um, that's the reason that that stuff True. is able to happen is that they keep manipulating and, and exploiting labor like that. Uh, mm. you, you hate to see, you do hate to see it, as the kids say, but <laughs> but we do, the, <laughs> it's, it's a new form of slavery, but we get cool choo-choo trains, so it's okay, guys. No, it's not. Um, anyways, uh, yeah, I think that's basically what I have here. I don't think I had any other dangling points. Yeah, I, most of my stuff is on the second one, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get there. We'll be back right after this brief musical break to discuss the second part of Roots, The Next Generations. Welcome back to Roots Chats. The second episode we watched this week was part two of Roots the Next Generations, 
It was written for TV by Ernest Kenoy, directed by Charles S. Dubin. It originally aired on February 19, 1979. Alan, what took place in part two of Roots TNG? In this episode, and that'll never stop being weird to me, by the way, that it's Roots TNG, but... (laughs) Uh, especially because in like the previews that I have on my file, it's like they show the baby being lifted up into the sky, but it's like lit in like neon blue for some reason, mm-hmm. and it looks like it's a Star Trek thing, and I <laughs> kind of hate it. <laughs> but no, I didn't hate this episode because what happens in this episode is Tom Harvey's daughter Cynthia falls in love with Will Palmer, a railroad worker who soon lands a job at the lumber company. That ladies and gentlemen it's what we call burying the lead (laughs) (laughs) fully uh yeah so magellan i'm curious what you thought about this episode because you know as we watch roots we're watching about three hours of television a week it's we run into often what's called second episode second episode (laughs) syndrome which is a problem where when you watch a lot of tv in a row in a quick succession you kind of like it's, it's hard to like keep critic brain on for that long especially when the episodes are this long um but I do feel that this one had some meat on its bones. So I'm curious, what'd you think? Well, I discovered that there's also such thing as third episode syndrome. Cause I, I hit second episode syndrome, probably two thirds of the way through the first part. And then I oh God. hit third episode syndrome, like a third of the way through part two. So we had to have a whole conversation at the beginning of like, okay, let's make sure that Magellan understands what happened. <laughs> <laughs> in the, in these two episodes. I mean, what I realized in doing that was that I almost didn't understand everything that happened too. So we're going to no no we're not absolutely not going in blind. We both watched it, guys, but just it a lot happens. Yeah, it's just a, like you said, it's just a lot of TV to watch in one sitting or in one day. Um Yeah. And uh but I think we've I think we figured out the main the main mm-hmm. things of it. So there was some stuff in here that I thought was interesting but i had a harder time kind of figuring out what the overall idea unifying idea was of this episode because the first one felt so unified around this notion of like young love and the complications of that in a Mm -hmm. time when race is is so complicated and uh mired in all of the legacy of slavery Mm -hmm. um and in this episode, I I don't know that I found, I as easily found kind of a theme. I guess maybe you could talk about this and compare Will Palmer to Tom Harvey and think about like kind of self-actualization and and what does it mean to be free or successful and what's possible for, for a black man uh, during this period of time. Mm-hmm. But even then, I... I don't know. Something about the character of Will Palmer, I I couldn't quite access him for some reason. I uh, wonder, yeah, because I, I had the same feeling about Will specifically where I'm like, this guy is going to become the male figure. He's going to become sort of the Tom Harvey of the next episode, right? It's going to become like the Cynthia and Will story. Yeah. And so that means that like he's going to take on this role of not only a father but a businessman and like what does that look like what does that what does what does that character act like you don't get a lot of like huge emotional range from the guy playing will which lends it this yeah. sense of like i don't know he just kind of feels like an apathetic dude who's walking through life and that's partly because you know we're in the late 70s we're in a time when tv acting was much was a bit more exaggerated so he's kind of playing it more 
like you would today where it's like, I don't know, I'm doing my best. I'm just trying to work hard. And that just doesn't gel with the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. But um, I still think that the story being told at the end of the day is good um, and, and meaningful um, because it's kind of picking up the pieces of where the last episode left Henning, Tennessee and seeing where that evolves in August of 1896, which is where we're starting this one. Uh, we actually open on a funny scene where, so telegraphs exist. I don't know exactly when telegraphs were uh, popularized and invented, but uh, a baseball game is com- being communicated to the to a bunch of men in town through a telegraph. Uh, mm, they're like keeping a score is, on the chalkboard. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, that was a great game. Too bad. So then they start talking about like... Uh, black folks trying to get into the, the into major league baseball and how some of them are like they'll never be as good and some of them are like they're both obviously very 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 racist ideas but like some of them are like they'll probably be better because they are used to working hard which is a really um fucked up thing in the history of sports and integration in american sports is this idea that like we would love to watch them play because they would be so good and that is as fraught as saying that they shouldn't play if not more fraught and yeah. fucked up but uh, so for some little bit of historical background at this point, uh, you know, later in the episode, we see a like ceremony around uh, uh, with a younger, the older Palm brother as he starts to run for office. And there's a American flag being waved around with, I think, I don't think it's 50 stars. I think it's a lot of stars, though. It starts to look yeah, like they were modern. They were in 50 states by this point. But then this year in 1896, Utah was admitted as a state. So they're getting there. You know, they're still mm-hmm. crossing. I don't know. When were Alaska and Hawaii added to the United States? Do you know? I want to say like mid 20th century, but I'm not sure. Okay. So yeah, we're definitely not at 50, but there were, I was trying to like count the stars, but the scene was too short. Um, it's the Cleveland administration. So we got Grover Cleveland here. And uh, there's actually, when you like look at the like what happened in American history in 1896, a lot of train crashes. <laughs> so they invented trains and then a lot of them tra- crashed into each other. Also relating to the theme of like starting your own business and what does that mean for people? The Dow Jones was brought uh, and, and it was introduced to the stock market in 1896. Hmm. So they start having stocks and the idea of, of like purchasing stocks exists now. Hmm. Also, we're moving away from trains. The Henry Ford is around doing his damn capitalist thing. He invented the Ford Quadricycle, which was built in 1896. So... Hmm. That's the world we're at as these trains continue to run through Henning and everyone's like talking about technology and stuff like that and yeah. telegraphs. Um, Cynthia is talking to Will and kind of having a little bit of a flirtation with him. And he, like I had mentioned in the first half, says that he has hesitation about proposing to her because he knows that Tom is not going to say yes to a man who doesn't have any upward mobility in his job. So uh, he says, I'm going to wait. I don't make enough money yet. Cynthia tells him she's not getting any younger. That's kind of our setup for their whole uh, conflict or their whole situation here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elizabeth is back after, I believe, 10 years or yeah, so. Yeah, say 10 years. In Kansas City. Um, wasn't exactly clear if this was for work or for school or for what. But it's a long time for her to be gone. And you have to imagine that a big part of her leaving was inspired by the falling out that she had with her father mm-hmm. uh, and at the in the last episode. Yeah. And when she comes back, um, they have this very touching scene where, you know, George Sanford Brown continuing to kill it, even in, it, as playing this like drastically different Tom Moore. He's yeah. fundamentally the same guy. He says, um, you know, I, it's not that I like basically it's complicated because he's like, I don't 
and I'm I do I am sorry that I said that stuff to you. And ultimately, if I prevented you from being happy due to the hate in my heart that I feel, that would be that would damn my soul to eternal damnation more than anything else that I would have let you do. So mm. I want us to still be able to love each other, which is nice. Yeah, it's a touching uh, reconciliation that they have. Yeah, and you have to have that stuff because I think that conflict needs to move, kind of make room for a lot of other stuff that happens in this episode. Yeah, right. Um, we have a guy here who's amongst one of the like awful white supremacist dudes in uh, in the town. Um, who I I kept writing, he looked like he like a weird Heath Ledger. He's just one of those like he's got the sort of sh- squinted squinted eye look, like kind of, <laughs> hey guys, I'm like really angry about black people existing all the time. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to his whole goal in this episode is that he's trying to ha- get rid of the black vote. Um, mm-hmm. He doesn't think that African Americans should be able to vote anymore, and it's frustrating that they can. Um, this is also a scene where Will, we are getting introduced to Will as like the business type. I think the other reason that we don't feel a lot of attachment to Will is most of the stuff that happens, it happens in front of him and not because of him. Like he witnesses a lot of history happening. True. There's a great scene where a guy quits the job at the lumber mill because he found a better job and it's just Will being like, huh, quitting your job. (laughs) That seems like a cool idea. But instead he applies for that guy's job because he's trying to, you know, make his way and make money. Um, and then one of his friends, whose name is Lee Garnett, uh, Lee Garnett is a man who is taken away for, uh, on account of stealing, uh, from the guy who runs the, the lumber mill and taken away to jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, but that's at least the sort of legal take on what's going on with him and why he was sent to jail. We learn later that it's more of a form of, what was the term again? I should have kept it handy. Well, so he's taken to jail for stealing, but then we learn later that actually that that guy owed him that money. Mm-hmm. So that complicates things. And then uh, he's put through this system known as convict leasing. Yes. Uh, which is another form, uh, sort of an, another innovation of white supremacy, mm-hmm. I suppose you could say, that took place during uh, the late 1800s, where essentially... Um, for folks who have seen the documentary 13th, that documentary does a really good job of explaining this, but within the 13th amendment, there's this loophole that essentially says that, um, slavery is abolished, um, except for as punishment for crime, uh, right. Is more or less what it says. And so during the mid 1860s, you have Southern states, passing a variety of laws known as black codes. And essentially what those laws do is they make illegal um, these like kind of technical things or just like things that aren't crimes so that they can arrest, convict African-American people and then lease them out, lease the convicts out um, to private corporations who will essentially pay the state um, a nominal fee in order to use the labor mm-hmm. of these people who have been imprisoned. And so black codes, you know, uh, imprisoned things like loitering, for example, um, or being in town at a certain time or whatever it might be. Possession of marijuana for a modern example. <laughs> right. Um and so that um 
many of those laws were were struck down, but the system of convict leasing remained in the ensuing decades. Um, and then you have Jim Crow laws and uh, other ways to kind of feed that system. So Lee Garnett ends up uh, leased out. I think he's like digging or building a railroad or something. I don't remember what it is. Or no, he's definitely doing he's some a, mining. So. Or he's on a plantation or something like that. I thought I thought there was like dirt as if they were doing mining on something. But I could okay. be wrong too. Um, but all of those things were examples of things that convicts would have been leased out to do. Can I ask you a history question? Sure. So, you know, we, we like to talk about how a lot of things have changed, but not as much as we like to think. And obviously, I don't think they call it convict leasing anymore. But can you still, if you have like prisoners, mm-hmm. I mean, you, they do still make them do labor, right? Is that still? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure of what the laws are in different states, but I, something that is immediately coming to mind is, um, when California was having those wildfires mm-hmm. and they sent um, prisoners to put them out. Like they, right. were, they were using incarcerated people as firefighters. Um, so that's still a version of this is happening in our society today. Yeah. Okay. And then even like giving them just jobs within prisons, like production of, of like textile you know, or license plates or whatever. Exactly. That's, yeah. that's all this kind of thing. Um, and then they get paid, but that's money that they can't use or they can use like within the prison. It's like a whole complicated, deeply fucked up system. Yeah. Um, but uh, the show gets a little bit more it tilts away from that for now. We're not exactly in the like heat of that. And uh, Will comes to the Harvey household to meet Cynthia's family and he comes bearing gifts. This is a very, very funny scene where he gives something called cigarettes to tom harvey uh, yeah which it, uh interesting historical note there yeah is he says it's the newest thing out of this factory in north carolina um and what he's referring to is uh if you've heard of duke university yeah um, yeah of course duke university was financed by this guy duke who made his fortune uh in tobacco in in uh durham north carolina well yeah. Um, so cigarettes are becoming a thing and it's, it's very funny because like Tom is like sniffing the cigarette cause cigarettes have a different smell obviously than cigars. Um, and it's like kind of a weird hyper technology where like, wait, they made it smaller and like it, it smokes different and doesn't work the same way. It's very weird to his, to his like generation. Um, and there's a very funny part cause we actually have, uh, I think Tom and Carrie or Jim and Carrie are here, uh, as well. They're just like hanging out with the family and uh someone says like oh yeah will has something he wanted to talk to you about uh tom and he's they're like wait oh and then like everybody gets up and like dips they're like we gotta go (laughs) (laughs) this is a private conversation yeah and um he is basically like can i court your daughter and he he immediately tom's immediately like yeah i'll think about it for sure i'll think about it and uh later uh, like he's like very nervously asking him like sweating and everything you get Tom like trying the cigarette and he like practically chokes on it and all this stuff uh, and when like they go off like Will's playing a thing on the piano with the girls um, Tom and Irene are talking in the corner and she's like just say yes and he's like I'm going to say yes I just didn't want to say yes right away I want to tell him that I'll <laughs> think about it because that's the kind of guy that Tom is um, but also this, he's saying that this guy will wants me to free his friend Lee Garnett from prison. Cause I have connections. So that's where they connect to the other plot. Uh, mm-hmm. and 
Uh, this is then when we cut back to the story of Jim, and uh, he's having a very conver- honest conversation with his mother, who I think we should mention here. Uh, the name of the actress again, Magellan, if you don't... Uh, Livy de Havilland it passed away on the day that we're recording this episode, yeah. actually. And she plays uh, Jim's mom, mm-hmm. uh, pretty well-known actress of the time. I think it was like 102 years old. 104. 104. Damn. Yeah. Dang, dang, dang. Um, and so he's talking to her and they have this pretty like, yeah, honest conversation. That's like, you know, th- I'm back. I'm happy to be back. I love this woman. I never stopped loving this woman. And I don't think it has to do anything with the color of her skin. And again, just like and he's like, but I do miss the, and this is a quote, the absolute God given assurance of being white. Oof. Uh, certainly missed that. <laughs> it's like, okay. Jim. Yeah. It's a free house. It's not a free house for you, Jim. It's a free society for you, Jim. Because you're yeah. white. Uh, yeah, I thought that part was really telling that he's like, I do love her, but also, hmm. Yeah. And she, the mom is like, oh, well, I thought that you just were trying to make us suffer and like mm-hmm. do the thing that would hurt us the most, uh, your parents. And it's like, whoa, okay, this is, this is all sorts of fucked up. And then yep. the really kind of, uh oh, moment is when there's a voice that goes, Daddy, Papa, who's who's this woman? Who's this white lady? It was in the preview for the for this episode. It was like, who's this white lady that just came in? Yeah. And he goes to his son and he says, this white lady is, and we get a shot of of Olivia de Havilland. And it she might as well have been <laughs> shaking her head and mouthing, no. <laughs> <laughs> like Don't the, say it. The expression that she gives is like, Ugh. and he says, this this woman is just visiting. Uh, and then he's like, oh, the son's like, I want mom to tuck me into bed. And then it, it was, a, it was kind of odd to me. Yeah. Because, that she's like, I'll do it. Yeah. Because then, you know, his grandma he doesn't know it's his grandma. She's like, would you like me to tuck you into bed? And he's like, no, <laughs> I don't know who you are, lady. You're just like a creepy old white lady. Um, he has no reason yeah. to trust her. It is. It's a little sad, I guess, but like, I, this is more of the like I don't care about the white people plot lines in this story very much. Yeah, it's more like I don't I don't my heart doesn't ache for anyone in that scene except mm-hmm. for the kid. Yeah. Um but like, you know, hey old lady, you you made your bed and now this is this is the price. It you is. don't get to have a grandkid. Right. Which and, comes uh, back later with with the colonel as well. Right, cuz the later the colonel sees uh sees Tom Harvey with his grandson and he's like hey i heard the news that uh your daughter gave birth your grandfather it must be a pretty great thing to be a grandfather <laughs> and tom harvey's literally holding hands with the colonel's grandson right in front of him yeah uh, that would be weird <laughs> yeah and we we get this really cool shot of them like clenching each other's hands even tighter yeah uh and yeah that's just it's powerful um and even even more powerful as we we transition back to the Lee plotline stuff. Uh, if you thought that like violence against black folks was now happening in the background and not uh, publicly, we visit Lee Garnett in prison, and Tom is absolutely horrified, and all of his PTSD's act is triggered at the same time as he sees men who are prisoners being worked to the bone being whipped exactly like the old times you can't i can't imagine something more i can't even fathom anything being that traumatizing and triggering for someone like that's just the worst thing you've ever seen i mean later like when they you know at the wedding uh irene is very quickly like i haven't seen this in a while 
I thought like I know how to fix this because I dealt with it a lot, like yeah. uh, the scars. But I thought I was never going to have to see this again, and that sucks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, ultimately, the thing that's always always worth mentioning that we do need, I feel a need to say every episode is that we as 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 the who Majan and I are can't speak to what it must be like to have our ancestors you know be enslaved people like this um and neither of us are black neither of us are 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 people of color it's not our experience but it's one that we empathize with and hope to work against and 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 in our in our lifetime if we can Mm -hmm. but it's a long process and it's not our story to tell but it's our story to talk about as well as everyone else so colonel warner uh who's older now and wears his confederate uniform around for fun uh, and his terrible son, Andy, uh, are trying to negotiate with Tom to help release Lee Garnett. But Andy later confines to his dad, like, wait, aren't we never going to release him? Because that's how this works. Mm-hmm. And it's just the show is saying the quiet part out loud, being like, yeah, they, they, they're not, they're not good white people. There's no such thing as good white people. Yeah. And right. uh, Andrew's like, you know, dad, it's kind of, it kind of like calls to mind sort of a ghastly version of old George from, from Roots. Where he's like, yeah, I do deserve more in life. I'm t- I'm tired of being unemployed and just sleeping around. I'm gonna run for office. And he's like, good for you, son. I'll make sure you get connections. Then he goes, fuck you, dad. I'm running against you <laughs> on a platform of disenfranchising black folks. Yeah. I got the vote. Yeah, just this awful. Was, this was um kind of a telling. So just to fast forward to that scene, uh-huh. we have this scene where um. Uh, like first of all kind of a dorky choice by the screenwriter to have andy pacing around to himself uh and he's saying like honorable men and stuff like clearly trying to evoke julius caesar yeah um, yep, yep, yep. and be like oh this young guy's the mark antony and his dad is brutus or whatever <laughs> and it's like okay i guess that's kind of cheesy but anyway um so we have the scene where andy gets in front of the crowd and he's like hey i'm gonna i'm gonna get rid of their right to vote uh, that's what's gonna happen. White people forever, basically. And he's like, "Ha ha! I got him! I got trapped my dad. He's he's not gonna play to this crowd." And it it kind of had me thinking about like the modern Republican Party and about Ooh. Colonel Warner as a sort of like, uh, you know, like a John McCain kind of figure. Sure. Yeah, of, the war like, veteran. Well, the war veteran and like the guy who, you know, everyone is kind of like, oh, he's an honorable dude. He's he's cool. Um, sharing the party with someone who's like a Trump or a or a even a Ted Cruz or a you know Tucker Carlson or someone like that, who's like much more vocal about uh, the scapegoating and the prejudice and the the dangerous racist ideology. Um, and I was just sort of thinking about that as like, this is kind of emblematic of a similar shift that's happening in the Republican party where you have an older group of politicians who are like, oh, you just have to play the game and like play nice with people. And that's politics and a newer generation who's like, yeah, or we could just like say, fuck these people and like white on the white hoods. And then the older generation sees the crowd getting riled up by that. And they're like, oh, that's where the action is. Let me go out there. And then Colonel Warner is basically like, hey, all that stuff that my son said, I'm going to do that too. So you still like me, right? And the crowd is like, yeah, sure. Whoever does it. Um, 
and you so can what, definitely what? feel that shift happening i think in in modern politics um I, I i like this tangent and i want to push on it just a teensy bit more but like one of the sort of my my critiques of roots is that it paints like the average like voting white person as like hopelessly ignorant and hopelessly mm. like uh willing to follow whoever gives them the most like power mm. and while there is obviously a lot of accuracy in that and the show is not about those people this is like you know the character of tertiary white voters is like not important to the story of roots really that much but they mm -hmm. are the ones in power who are like making decisions that are keeping the characters that we do care about uh enslaved in different ways yeah. um but i just think that it overall it's like when people talk today about like ignorant people from the south i i thought a lot about that in this episode and how like mm. america developed this identity where like it got comfortable with itself by accepting that like oh those guys are they're ignorant we don't yeah. talk about them. And that's, that's obviously extremely problematic and still prevalent today. And like, where did that even come from? Because obviously, like, you know, it in ways it comes from people talking the the Civil War and the unions and the Confederates, but they were Confederates in the North and there were union in the South. Like the line is being drawn in kind of, I think, a little bit arbitrarily. I don't know enough about yeah. history. Yeah, I, I think we still see that that today when people talk about like Trump voters and Trump country and or like idiots in like the Florida man thing. Yeah, right. And so we have this conception of like those, you know, it's a bunch of hicks or whatever, and, and and they have bad politics and they're ignorant and we're smarter than them. And uh, it really um, stymies a sort of like empathetic understanding and mm -hmm. also uh, keeps people from recognizing how those problems exist in the North or exist in the middle class or exist in the upper class or exist among liberal white people and those kinds of things. So, um, it just, it's an oversimplification that, that leads us to miss a lot of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. But also this is, I think that this depiction of this like angry mob who wants to restrict the votes of African-American people is probably historically accurate. Yes. Yes. yes, um, yes. Yeah. And um, the this episode does does another of the roots things again, where um, they basically have the white characters meet in a back room and say <laughs> like, "Okay, how are we going to do white supremacy now, gentlemen?" What's a good idea for our white supremacy meeting, boy? <laughs> and uh, they're like, "Well, this this is what people are doing now." Um, so it's a little didactic and um, you know, kind of dorky the way that it was in the episode they were talking about sharecropping but yeah um it's a good educational tool i think where they're they're talking about the different ways that the 15th amendment is violated during this period of time and african americans are disenfranchised um so they name a couple of 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 methods they talk about the poll tax mm -hmm. which is essentially a an amount of money that you would have to pay to be able to vote or register to vote um, then there's the, and sometimes those poll taxes were waived for, uh, poor white voters, for example. Yeah. Then there were literacy tests. Uh, and we actually see this really, really, um, really amazing scene. I think it was my favorite scene of the two episodes where Tom Harvey goes in to vote and he's like, they're not going to stop me from voting. I've been yeah. voting for 10 years. Like, it's just another example of Tom Harvey 
having faith in institutions uh, and being fucked over because of it where he's like, I'll just go in there and vote. So he goes in and they're like, you got to pay the poll tax. And he's like, okay, I did look, I've been, Oh my God, this scene. Oh yeah. I, I and like then, fell out of my seat at this scene. It's all so intense. And then they, um, they are like, okay, now you got to do the literacy test. And the way that that would go is, um, different literacy tests were employed in different places in different ways. Some had tests, written tests where either like the time limit was insanely short and, or the questions were worded in a way that were like confusing or contradictory so -hmm. that the person scoring the test could sort of decide who was right and who was wrong basically. Right. 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 Um, But another practice that we see here is some States, would say that the person who's screening people uh, would have to also, you could, some of those people screening people could just assume that someone was literate. Right. Uh, right. It's sort of like carding someone at, at a bar. Like you can just say, Oh, they look old enough. And for them, it's like, Oh, they're white. They are probably literate. Um, but if they're giving the literacy test more universally, um, they might be told like, okay, you have to give this person a snippet of, the state constitution to read. And that's what happens to Tom Harvey. And um, I sort of do this thing in my class where I say like, okay, and here's the snippet of the constitution that a white person might get. And it's a sentence that is like, this constitution establishes the state of Tennessee as a state or something like that. (laughs) And then the part that's given to a black person is like heretofore forthwith under this, you know, uh, stricture. And it's like a huge paragraph of legalese that doesn't make sense and is just like winding and confusing. And you're only really going to understand it if you're like a lawyer um, and you're trained in reading that sort of thing. And then they could say like, okay, you didn't read that one word, right. Or what they do to Tom Harvey, which is like, cool. What does it mean? You sounded it out. You read it. Do you understand it? And he's like, well, I, and they're like, okay, well, you can't vote. It's so, I mean, fucked up is not, doesn't do justice to how deeply unjust that is. But I think that scene is really powerful in in just fully putting on display that the system is stacked against African-American people. And there isn't like a way to beat it really through, through the system itself. It's for the for Tom Harvey. It's like work eight times as hard. You're a member of the community. You're well educated. You have a good family and a good and good business, and you still don't get what everyone else gets because we just decided to. Um, yeah, and on the other side of the table is this guy that you've had a political alliance with for a decade, who calls you his best, one of his best friends, and says that he he developed this town in tandem with you and all this stuff. Like none of that matters when it comes down to yeah. it. And it's like your political organizing that has kept him in power. Yeah. And the second that you're not useful to him anymore, it's like, sorry, Tom, who? Who is that? Not what's I don't know them. Yeah. Uh, infuriating, terrifying, sad, all of that. It even like brings to mind the modern practice of of legalese, like you said, and EULAs and uh, insurance forms and paperwork being deliberately complicated. Like, I mean, the conversation around uh, yeah. signing up for Obamacare even was like part of this is, is that like we call it 
legalized socialized healthcare, whatever you want, like an early form of that. But the process of like applying to it is about navigating legalese, a broken telephone system, uh, and a, a system that doesn't want to communicate to you what any of these pr- these plans mean, so that the people who can't afford private programs that just throw easy insurance at you, you just can't get that. You have to do. You have to work hard for the free mm-hmm. insurance. Yeah, and you don't even have to look beyond voting to see similar things happening today too i mean yeah states having complex rules about like what kind of id you're supposed to have to be able to vote um states like purging their voter rolls periodically for no discernible reason um we're living in a time where still people are being systemically and actively disenfranchised Um, and you know, maybe it's not that there's like literally a poll tax or a literacy test because now those things are illegal, but the, the idea still stands that's still what's happening. Right. And and I think this, this, um, episode in a way, maybe for a 1978 audience, but especially for a 2020 audience reminds us that even though like I, you know, I think at least that especially probably the two of us have problems with the modern American voting system. It's deeply unfair and broken and not representative of the people's interests at all. Mm-hmm. You should still vote because they don't want you to vote in a lot of ways. Sure. Yeah. Even if, even if your vote is going to be manipulated and all that stuff, I think it's still valuable that you assert that power that you have as a citizen regardless of who you are because you have a voice just like everyone else does even though that that vote is not being used well yeah that's my platform that i'm running on yeah i agree with that uh so yeah you you actually ended up covering most of the scenes i wanted to talk about so i appreciate that uh but also you know we get like will proposing to cynthia and the aforementioned scene where uh he is like it's his wedding day and they're waiting for hours for him and they're like where's will is this guy gonna flake at the last minute and in reality he was running to his boss to like get bob campbell um to get the money that he owes the guy and runs it to the to the person that it's owed to in the rain and then runs to his wedding and has this cute moment with cynthia where she's like how are you why are you so late he's like i'm working on my job for you for the family and then she's like, you've never told me you love me. And he's like, he just turns to her and he's like, I love you. Okay, stop Well, asking. first, first he's like, now's not the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, time. buddy, are You're you sure? You're at wedding. This is the time. This is the only time. Oh, man. It's Very funny. <laughs> Very so much strange. like, what's Will's character? <laughs> what's, why is he like this? Yeah, I don't know. He, he almost felt like Don Drapery to me. <laughs> Sure, sure. Not the sort of like philandering side of Don Draper, but the very much like, oh, yes. I, a little I, stoic. I do business. That's what I do for the family. Yes. Yeah. I don't I don't say I love my wife. That's ter- that's dumb. Yeah. Um I actually thought I forget if it was no, it's in this it's in this episode. Um, but I'll get to it. I want to I want to mention I want to mention that this show shouts out Ida B. Wells and that made my heart smile that they that they were like referencing that. But before we get there, we have the old dads, including Tom, in the back of the wedding, like passing around a bottle of moonshine. He's like, I thought this was a Christian wedding. And they're like, <laughs> I was like, I believe in God, but I believe in my <laughs> right to get fucked up even more. Basically. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Love yeah. him. Want to be that kind of old man someday. Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, and then all this happiness. And like, I don't know. I again can't speak to this experience but just like the dads standing and drinking in the backyard of the wedding is a 
is something that I cherish. Like that's just a tradition <laughs> that I really love. Yeah. Um, Lee Garnett stumbles into this wedding, uh, bloodied and battered and and bruised and everything, um, because even though they got the papers to to get him out on on a ch- on his charge because it was unfair, even though they did all the right things, mm-hmm. the man that uh, had control over that kept the papers in his pocket until he decided that they were done whipping him. And then he was like, all right, now you can go. I'm done with you. So he comes back with all these whipping wounds. And Irene, yeah, again, like has to rip his shirt off and be like, okay, here we go again. I haven't done this since I was a kid. (laughs) They have to dress this guy's whip wounds. It's the worst. Um, And, you know, we have like Andy breaking up with his girlfriend, whatever. He's trying to run for office. It's bad. We have that scene that you talked about where his old, his father is like, I I love white supremacy too, guys. I'm cool. Uh, Hmm. They both vote on that. Tom is angry. Then we get the amazing voting scene. Again, nothing but shout outs to that. And like as he's talking about like, I earned my rights to vote. I believe it's Cynthia who's like, Ida Wells is running a newspaper talking about this stuff and how they're trying to disenfranchise us. Uh, and look what happened to her. They like burned down her 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 place of work. Yeah. And they're like, done horrible things to her since she decided to speak out about that. Ida B. Wells fucking rocks. She's, She's like so awesome. The, I think my favorite historical figure, maybe. Uh, can you speak to more of the stuff that she's done, at least? Because all I've always uh, known is about is the, you know, civil rights movement stuff, NAACP, and the newspaper. Yeah, I mean, that's the main thing to know about her is that she is was like an incredibly brave investigative journalist who brought a lot of uh, unwanted attention and violence because of the things that she reported on and she's probably best known for um publishing this report called southern horrors Mm -hmm. where she sort of exposes the epidemic of of lynching that ends up taking place in the late 1800s into the early 1900s um where she the the kind of accepted um the accepted truth about lynching at the time, especially by Northern white people is the idea of like, okay, I I've heard it's maybe happening, but I've also heard that in each of those cases, it was an African-American man who raped a white woman. And so like, okay, I don't think it's great, but obviously it seems justified. Um, And Ida B. Wells does a lot of work to dispel the the lies of that by saying like that's not what happened in these cases that those are false charges that are brought against black men as a pretense to murder them Mm -hmm. um and so she really was one of the leading voices in exposing and pushing back against the epidemic of lynching um and there's this amazing quote that i use from her in class every year where to paraphrase Basically, she says, like, here are all the rights that were promised to African-American people. Here are all the things that are happening. <laughs> there's disenfranchisement. There's segregation. There's violence. There's, um, you know, all there's um, sharecropping. There's all of these different things that are making it such that the condition of African-American people has either not changed since slavery or in some demonstrable ways has gotten uh, worse and and more dangerous. Um, right so she's just really fucking cool yeah people yeah. should read more about her honestly she's 
one of those historical figures that everyone some while people bump into and like i just thought it was great that they mentioned her in this and i'm like okay people like they're not forgetting about her because i was not taught about her in school at all and yeah, i don't think i was either you know it's like okay she's super important <laughs> investigative journalism rules and all the other stuff it's yeah so yeah the, the voting scene happens and then the show kind of does this weird the miniseries does this weird thing where we we know that the problems that are happening to tom matter but the show, like, we keep talking about the handoff, right? Like, how do we go from one generation to the next? Yeah. This is, like, probably the sloppiest handoff to me because we know that the, the Will storyline is not going to end necessarily happily. We know this is a story about, like, his business being manipulated against him to continue to mm-hmm. uh, take away his power and his wealth. Mm-hmm. But right at... So, actually, before we get to the Will stuff that ends the that precedes the end of the episode, um, horrifying sequence, the white folks... The next day, uh, chase down Lee Garnett um, because they're not happy with the results of him being free and they're not done with him and he's he's burned against the tree. Um, it feels like one of those scenes that I, I think they I wish they talked about more. Which the characters like talked about what's happening. Yeah. It's pretty quiet. It's mostly just like the action of it happens. Everyone buries him. They're sad about it. And then snap your fingers. Hey, Will, you want to have a whole business? And it's like, wait, that was a important why yeah well, it's also important to recognize uh sort of what the things that enable that to take place um exactly because there's the moment where lee garnett pulls a gun on or maybe he does i don't i wasn't closely watching the scenes so that also could have just been a lie i think he like um, no i don't think he pulls it out i think that they see it because he turns around and like from like getting going up to the guys and then tom goes what is that in your hand and he's like it's a gun i was gonna shoot them and he's like don't fucking shoot them and he goes okay i won't yeah and then they still are like we saw it and then you guys see it you all saw it right he pulled it out on me and aimed it at me like yeah. they're clearly lying they're exaggerating so they go to uh the colonel and they're like those guys you know came here to to have a fight basically and the colonel's like, well, they didn't do anything, so we can't do anything to them. And then they say, oh, but that one guy pulled a gun on us. And then the colonel's like, well, oh. if that's true, then I guess he deserves whatever's coming to them. And they are like, whoa, did you hear that? All right, cool. Basically, the colonel the, said like, we can do it. Mayor of the town is giving permission, just like the judge guy in the last episode um, is essentially giving permission to these these terrorists to go and murder someone Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and he's just yeah he's horribly murdered and they they have to get past that and this is again one of those where i was like maybe it's within the scope of this episode that's already going long but we just pivot it's like basically a camera cut from like wow that was really awful and they bury him and they do all that stuff it is you know they address the fact that he died but uh right away then that we have will going into the office of uh the people who i guess run the town and they're like hey so bob campbell is a terrible terrible business owner we know that you're great we're really happy that you came up and and worked so hard you didn't tell me it was your wedding night will god damn it and it's like yeah it was my wedding night i do need this job or else i can't live and they're like listen he foreclosed we're gonna give you an amazing brilliant business opportunity wouldn't you wouldn't what would you what would you say if i told you that you could own your business you own this whole business do you want to sign now or what? And he's like, uh, and he's like, so happy. Music gets all happy. And we cut to the R. Campbell lump. The, the R. Campbell lumber company is now the W. E. Palmer lumber company. Uh-huh. And it's like, wow. So Will's like one of the first important black business owners of this area. 
Um, that's really great. But um, right under the backdrop of like, uh, you know, all of the other characters congratulating him for, uh, you know, having his first child be born. He's talking to Tom about how stressed he is that what that business deal really meant was they gave him all of the debts that Campbell had and increased the interest on all of them so he would never pay them off. Have you heard of this before? It keeps happening. <laughs> like, I really, that's that's the one like plot there that I was like, ooh, I really wanted to see the end of that. Um, or however, because his, his whole thing is like, I'm not going to take this lying down. I'm going to earn more money than they can, than they can bill me for. Um, but he has a kid uh with cynthia named bertha george and uh tom takes a child outside and does the other roots thing which is that he holds him up to the stars just like omaro did to kunta quinte so many years ago and it's very nice and then we get the sort of like modern like record scratch moment where uh his wife is like why do you keep do why are you doing that why did your dad do that <laughs> why did chicken george do that when you were born and he says it's just something in the family as we call it a close on part two of Next Generations. Um, I kind of wish I didn't watch the preview of the next episode, Magellan, because I i don't know. I, I was like, I don't know what's going to be next. And then they're like, the war. And I'm like, oh, shit, the war. <laughs> I forgot. But I'm really excited to see them handle the world wars and uh, the 20th century now. So yeah. you want to tell me, give me some delicious plot summaries of what's going to happen in parts three and four sure. of Roots the Next Gen? Sure, I'd love to. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Next time on Roots Chats, we are watching episodes three and four of Roots The Next Generations. First episode three, 17 years later, Will Palmer prospers as the owner of the lumber company. Hell yeah. Then episode four, Simon Haley spends World War I with the 92nd Infantry colored in France. Oh. On his return to the States, Simon and his buddies Doxy and Haywood are greeted by a lynch mob in Knoxville, Tennessee. Boy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the excited to talk about black infantry and the idea of the, like, often under-discussed topic of, of African-Americans being used in the world wars. Um, but that'll be a conversation in, in and of itself. So, yeah, more roots, guys. It'll be great. It'll be a lot of interesting fun. I'm honestly having such a great time talking about the history of it. I mean, this is a heartbreaking, sad, sad show, and so is history. But you got to talk about this stuff at some point. And yeah, and uh, yeah, you want to learn a frustrating piece of trivia that I just accidentally stumbled upon? I do actually. So George Stanford Brown, yep, who plays Tom Harvey, Tom Harvey, yep, uh, was nominated for an Emmy for his work (gasps) as Tom Harvey in the miniseries Roots. But oh, that yeah. year, the Academy decided to change the number of nominees from six to five, and his nomination Ooh. was revoked. Oh. Why? That's some bullshit right there. It smells. What is that? Oh, that's racism. <laughs> <laughs> right. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, that does suck, but uh, he did great work on the show, and I think yeah, he definitely he deserved an Emmy. A lot of people on the show honestly deserved Emmys. Yeah, I agree. Um, you want to take it to the plugs, Helmut John? Let's do it. So there are a number of ways that you can get in contact with the show. You can email us, chatspod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash chatspod. Uh, You can also join the Reddit community of folks who like to discuss previous and current chats episodes over at reddit.com slash r slash chatspod. All of those are spelled C-H-A-T-Z-P-O-D. 
If you'd like to support the show and you're not already doing so, you can uh, head on over to patreon.com slash chatspod, and there are a couple of fun things to find over there. So you can support us at a dollar a month and get access to the chats files, as well as some old movie commentaries. Uh, $3 a month gets you access to all of our uh, current and new uh, bonus content three times a month, which could include us piloting shows, watching movies, or just talking about whatever we want to. And then at $5 a month, you get access to the full backlog of uh, bonus content stuff and our just our gratitude. And we love you. And we really appreciate you if you do that. Uh, and we've been saying this throughout Roots Chats, but it remains true that if you believe that your money is better spent uh, other places, if you'd like to support causes for social and racial justice and then just show us that you've done that, then we can give you uh, a link to access all of our Patreon stuff uh, as a sort of gesture of gratitude for you choosing to spend your money that way, which uh, we want to support and we appreciate. Indeed, Magellan, and thank you for, for reminding the folks about that. Yeah. Um, and then we always like to end our episodes here by just talking about what we've been enjoying the past few days, what you could consider enjoying or consuming. I don't like that word, so I'll just say enjoying uh, between now and next time. And those are called chatsums. So, Alan, any any chatsums for the folks? Yes, sir. I actually have two chatsums this week. Wow, me too. Wow. Yeah, so big chunky chatsums. That's gross. I'm chunky sorry I said chatsums. it that way. Uh, one okay. is a, so I, I follow a couple of film essay channels. Um, and one of the ones I follow start, put out a video recently with the sort of subheading one excellent scene that's X hyphen C E L L E N T. And it was a like in-depth film analysis of a specific scene from, uh, X-Men The Last Stand. The channel that I followed is Now You See It, which might've been one of my previous chats a long time ago. But he talked mm-hmm. about the scene in uh, X Men: The Last Stand where they go to the president's office and and uh, they go to the Oval Office is what that's called and talk about like <laughs> you know how it's it's building on all of the other scenes around the White House and how all the X Men it's like a culmination scene how brilliant it is and I was like that's yeah. really cool I really like that this guy decided to do that and what I learned is that one excellent scene was a sort of like group effort from uh, a ton of different film YouTube channels. All on July 23rd, they all put out their one excellent scene videos on different scenes from the X-Men movies. Um, so I don't even think I can cool. count how many there are. There's like like 20 plus videos. All of them are like 10 minutes long each or something. Uh, and, you know, people don't talk about the cinematic competency of the X-Men films. I mean, they're, they're not perfect films. Mm-hmm. But what I love about watching these videos, I haven't watched a, lot, a ton of them, but like... Those movies have problems, but when you, as you, when you're a film critic, when you're a critic sure. in general, you have to take a specific lens to something. So, like you know, there's one that's about uh, the the role of space in X Men First Class and how there's a scene where the kids in First Class go to like their dorm for the first time and they all get to hang out and then they get in trouble because like Sebastian mm-hmm. Shaw comes in and kills one of them and like how it like and he interferes in the space and it's like wow that's so clever. And one of the people in the comments rightfully mentioned like you can focus on the space and you could you could take a whole different read of that scene and how fucked up it is that the first person they kill is the one black X-Man in first class is that they're like, oh, this guy, does, like we just blow him up. And how those movies like often will take the characters of color and just be like, oh, that doesn't matter. Or you die for everyone else to live. Like you can take a positive or negative or any sort of lens to any like snapshot of a movie regardless of its quality. 
and discuss it professionally. So it's just a really fascinating take on like how how deep can you go on these movies that honestly don't get talked about in critical circles that much anymore. So you can just type into YouTube one excellent scene. I spelled it earlier and just fall down that fun rabbit hole uh, like I did cool. this week. Nice. The other one is a chatsum for a video game that I started playing today. Um, and the game is called Hard Space colon Ship Breaker. Uh, and it's a game that takes place and it's, it's in the Homeworld universe. So old PC gamers will recognize uh, Homeworld um, as a strategy franchise. But Hard Space Shipbreaker has a great premise that chats folks and uh, people who who gel with our like political standing will definitely like. The idea is that you are a person who's working as a shipbreaker, which means that you're someone who goes to abandoned, like busted, broken down ships in this like fantasy sci-fi world, and you crack into them using like different cutting tools uh to like get the money inside like if people remember if, if people watch listen to pilot chats and listen to us talk about the the firefly pilot the stuff they do at the beginning of the pilot is what this game is about where it's like ooh, what kind of money am i going to find oh. inside of an old dead ship so you get to do that stuff but it's it's wrapped up in this idea that you're paying off your debt you are somebody who in this like future is owned by a corporation your body is owned by them and these like ship breaks are super duper dangerous. Like you are dealing with like nuclear weapons and stuff like that. It's like been decommissioned, but might still be active and like cutting into it with like a molten laser. And so, you know, you can die in this game pretty easily. But the thing that's like the sort of like, uh, I guess, uh, critique on society thing when you die, they just, the company still has a lease on your life. So they just clone, clone you and bill you for your clone. So you're you every time you finish a mission, the game is like, you have a hundred million dollar loan. You just took off a hundred dollars off of it. But we're gonna minus another five we're gonna add another five million because you, you had you died once. So it's this kind of like, you know, you can already see the sort of gears turning of like, oh, capitalism like gives you a loan so that you can't pay it off and all that stuff. It's that idea is like really scary and sad, but there's something empowering about being able to control that in a in a video game space. And be like, I'm doing this. And I and like, what does it say about the world that I'm able to do this and survive these horrible situations? Um, it's really fascinating. And if you have a computer that can and run it, it's in early access right now. So it's still pretty rough. But I think there's a really cool core game in there. And again, that game is called Hard Space Shipbreaker. Cool. But John, what do you got for chats this week? Um, I have two things that I've been watching on Netflix that I'm yeah. pretty late to. Uh, one of them I'm like a couple months or a month late to, and one of them I'm like years late to. A decade um, late to. So maybe people have seen these or formed opinions about them before. Um, but the first thing is I just finished today uh, the the miniseries The Last Dance about mm. uh, the last season of the amazing michael jordan chicago bulls team mm -hmm. um and i don't really care about sports at all um i don't particularly know a lot about sports uh so there was some stuff in it where it was like okay i don't fully understand basketball or like what the deal is but um as as this story about like a huge pop culture figure and about the kind of pop culture significance um of basketball during the early to mid nineties um, or to the late nineties. Even I found that that documentary was like actually really interesting um, and pretty well made. So I would encourage mm. people to check it out. 
because it's fun and it, it's cool. I mean, the zeitgeist moment has passed, so you won't be able to see all the tweets that I saw and didn't get at the time. But uh, I still think it's worth a watch. What about do they, do they talk about the pizza story? The pizza, uh, yeah, about how he got sick from the pizza. Yes. Okay. Great. That was one of those yeah, like in, bits of in there. One of those Michael Jordan ephemeras that I was like, "Is this real?" And apparently, someone was like, "They answer, they address the pizza story." And I was like, "Holy shit!" Yeah, um, they they kind of. Um, it's one of those things where I don't think you're gonna learn if you know a lot of stuff about Michael Jordan. There's like not anything. Oh my god, shocking! It's more just like a really well done repackaging of things that you could probably read on a Wikipedia page or something. Um, so it's, I will say it's not like revelatory but i think that it's uh it's a story that's well known that's well told um okay yeah, yeah that's what i like so I it's, wor- it's, it's worth it's on- it for that reason and it's on netflix now it's on netflix now yeah and mm-hmm. uh yeah and each in each episode kind of takes a different approach or talks about a different element of the story um but yeah so there's that then uh, I've been watching this TV series that I'm pretty late on, uh, from started in the year 2000. Um, and it's just a story about a mom and her daughter living in Connecticut <laughs> and sort of, you know, trying to get by in, in the world. And guys, I've been digging for the last half hour and I haven't been able to find the lead that Magellan buried. He's going to, we're going to find it together. And what could it um, possibly be Magellan? And it's it's a story about, you know, it's a single mom. She had her daughter when she was really young, and now her Mm -hmm. daughter's going to, like, a new private school. Um, And so it's sort of, like, navigating that culture and relationship with their family and boys and stuff. And it's called Gilmore Girls. Wait a minute. It's a a really good show. I've been watching Gilmore Girls off of Friends Recommendation, and it's very, very good. Where is that available? Netflix. Oh shit, yeah. Oh, I love Netflix. You gotta watch. Have you seen it? Have I've you watched seen a lot. Gilmore I've Girls? watched a lot of Gilmore Girls. Not all of it. I've watched a lot of it. Okay, it's very, it's very, very good. It's yeah. very well written, and characters are great. It would have been a great chat show. It still could be, but I'm gonna keep watching it. They um, what's it called? It's kind of like what if Sorkin was good because they talk real fast on that <laughs> yeah. show, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like what if Sorkin was yeah a woman and actually knew how to write things that didn't suck that's oh my god gilmore girls is from the director of but i'm a cheerleader seminal queer film but i'm a cheerleader wow 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 and she worked on silicon valley wow i'm learning so much about jamie babbitt today holy crap holy i always remember is she the one of the directors or yes she's the main she directed 18 episodes of the show she directed a lot of it they 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 move directors a lot she's the one she's like one of the ones who directed the most episodes um I digress. Uh, yes, Gilmore Girls rules. I One of the first pieces of TV trivia I ever learned was that Alexis Bledel, that was like the first English language show that she worked on because she is not, she wasn't born in, the, in uh, or no, she was born in Houston, but I think she like grew up speaking Spanish primarily. Oh. So she was like, they put me on the hardest, like fastest talking English show oh, ever. That's funny. And I like didn't know that my English wasn't even that good for a while. <laughs> Um, but yeah, rock and roll. I'm very happy they're checking out that show. Yeah. Cool. Well, folks, we hope you all enjoyed this episode of Roots Chats and you learned something and you thought about some stuff. Thank you to Magellan for being the rock to my hard place. And thank you for listening to this episode 
of Roots Chats. Peace.